If you weren't with us last time, I began a, what, I'm, what I'm going to have to say is a series of teachings on the Tribulation Temple. And uh, first of all, the reason why it, we call it the Tribulation Temple, it's probably also called the Last Days Temple by some. But uh, it is in reference to the temple that the Jews want to build in Israel today. And uh, certainly the Orthodox Jews uh, who are believing and crying out for a Messiah to come are leading this, uh, this particular movement to, uh, to once again not only build a, a, a temple, but build a temple for the same reasons that the temple was built by Solomon, which was to worship God through sacrifice and, uh, and, and offering for the sake of offering the, the blood of the animals uh, in fulfillment of, of the scriptures. And uh, they have not been able to do that now for over 2,000 years, or at least 2,000 years. So the dilemma, the major dilemma that they're having, of course, is the fact that what most people consider to be the Temple Mount area that the temples uh, traditionally have been said to have stood on is in control of uh, the Arabs, the Islamic Arabs. And uh, as I've said often, to suggest anything as far as putting a temple on that particular property of 35 to 36 acres of land would, uh, would begin World War III. Now, I know that uh, in thinking about uh, how legitimate or illegitimate it might be that they have this, this particular land. It, now it falls under this whole category of, of the international. It falls under the category of the United Nations. It falls under the category of, of having some sense of, of, uh, of uh, worldwide attention that uh, we see happening today in, 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 a, in a great way against the people of Israel simply to exist, you know. So we have that particular situation. Yet, when we look at the scriptures from the Old to the New Testament, there is reference to a last day's temple. We talked about those uh, things last week in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And certainly in Daniel, uh, you can go back to certain other passages in Daniel. There's a reference, of course, uh, in the prophets uh, to a temple. But more importantly, there is the references that are given by Paul of the son of perdition, who we know as and we call the Antichrist, actually going into a temple to declare himself to be God. So for that to be true, then there has to be a temple in the last days. Not the temple of Ezekiel, which we've been studying now for the past couple of years, and we're almost going to be done once I can get done with this particular series of, of studies. But it is, uh, it is in fact a, a separate temple 
And it's not a temple that uh, we can say is, even though it is a temple that Paul calls the temple of God, the Antichrist goes in and declares himself to be God. And, and so it isn't, it isn't the last, last temple. That is reserved, of course, for Jesus. And it is the temple that he will establish. It is the temple that he will build. And as we've been studying up through chapter 43 of Ezekiel, it is the temple that he is going to establish on a temple mount that is going to have uh, to be placed upon a new geography, a new topography, whereas it is going to be changed when he comes, probably when he steps upon the Mount of Olives, as we saw in the book of Zechariah. So all these things are going to be happening in a, in, in a, in a way that we've never, ever seen before, once Jesus lands back on the earth with his saints, because that's what the scripture says, and with the angels as well. So I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And I quoted this last week as one of the texts that uh, refers to Solomon building the, the first temple, but it refers to the place where the temple was built. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. So take note of every statement that is made about where, because these are all specific points, Jerusalem being a little bit more general and then more specific as we go. It says, uh, at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto, God, uh, unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And then in verse 2 it says, and he began to build in the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. And so the first part of our study on the tribulation temple focused on the possibility that the traditional view of the temple mount may not be as accurate as believed by most as the location for any future temple to be built in Jerusalem. What I said to you all was, this is something that we want to study from the standpoint of looking at some of the things that certain archaeologists have discovered, certain things that these archaeologists have pointed out, not only from their findings in the city of David, but also from the scriptures. And, and that's to say that the traditional Temple Mount view, that that, where, that is where the temple has to be, does not have to be. So I said, you know, we're going to look at this alternative and, you know, we're going to look at both sides. And I was hoping to get to both sides tonight. Uh, it's possible that I'll get to a part of it. But I'm, I'm, I've, I've been like pouring, pouring over all of these things so that I can make sure I don't miss out on anything. And I keep adding. So that's why I said part three is next week. You know, hopefully there's not a part four because we've got to get back to Ezekiel. But in any event, that, that's what we're looking at. This, this is kind of the premise of what we're looking at even tonight. That that traditional view of, Mount, of the Temple Mount may not be as accurate as, as believed by most. So we're going to look at some of these arguments on both sides. And the one thing that was left out last week, which should be the first point to be made tonight in this study is, where then is the alternate site? Where would it be? And even though I mentioned the city of David, I did so rather generally speaking last week, I didn't really give details as to where it may be, and that was, of course, intentional. Praise the Lord. So I could get you back here tonight. But also the mention of the excavations that are continuing in the city of David and the discoveries that are being made 
will be a, a good addition to this introduction to the second part of our study. So I've included that handout that you have with the scripture references, and you'll notice that those are the links, as I talked about this last week, the links and the connectors to the city of David, connecting the city of David and, the, and, and Mount Zion and the Holy Mountain by, by, you know, look at all the scriptures that I used last week. That's inside your handout. And, and I think I've uh, either outlined or, or uh, uh, bold uh, printed the, uh, the words that you need to consider. Uh, as, as being um, uh, the, the connectors to where the temple was. And uh, so then also on the back of, that, of the outline or the uh, handout is a historic timeline for the construction of each temple, which I also gave last week, so you have that now with you. And by the way, there are many more references in the scriptures than were given in the handout. So when you have time, take uh, that opportunity to do your own studies and searching out some of these other references. And again, by using the key words, Zion, my holy mountain, the holy hill, uh, Jerusalem is very general, as I said, but it's also a, one of the key words. It is within that city of Jerusalem. So the first thing I wanna show you tonight uh, has to do, and don't, don't, the, the words there on the, on the slide is just because it's part of a different slide. But if you remember, we were talking a little bit about uh, the Temple Mount and how, if, if you look at the traditional, this is the traditional, by the way, view of the Temple Mount where you have that uh, northwest corner Right there, y'all see it? I can't point over there because I can't get there. But uh, that, that is supposed to be the Antonia Fortress. And if we're talking about a legion of Romans in the city of Jerusalem and where they were to be encamped, we would have to say that 10,000 people would have to fit into that little spot. 6,000 in the legion, 4,000 personnel assisting and also family, wives and concubines, by the way, Romans liked those, those things to have with them. To fit them into that little corner is a little hard to imagine. And that's the reason why I wanted to point that out first and foremost, that this in the traditional view would have been them keeping a watch and tabs on what was going on by the Jews in the temple area. So you'll notice then that uh, that seems a little bit uh, far-fetched. The next slide that I want to show you here has to be, uh, actually we have walked through this particular area which is just south of the southern steps of the traditional side of the Temple Mount. This is the, uh, the southern steps would be right about in this area here. So this excavation is in the city of David, a little over 600 feet from the wall itself of the city, of the old city, and of, I should say, the Temple Mount, that's what I meant to say. So all these excavations are really coming uh, to some fruition in the sense that they're, they're exposing more and more of the layers of the city of David. Now. There is, a, there is a section of the city of David called the city of David that you go into and then you take a walk down into the, uh, the very areas where the Hezekiah's tunnel is and then eventually you end up coming out where the pool of Siloam would be. And that's a very important thing. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's in a separate section than what, where this picture is being taken. So this is pretty much... Uh, where most people conceive this this little uh, divider. Let's see. Where am I? Oh, I can't put my finger on the red thing. You know, that's why. Anyway, that's that's where people walk. That's a sidewalk on the other side, and so they were walking down the sidewalk, and they have little hole peepholes, and they can see what excavations. But 
we, we were able to walk here where these people are and um, get to see some of that. But that's the open part. We haven't even gotten to the excavations uh, that are being done down below the city of David that are down deep where they have discovered things that pertain to some kind of a worship place. That, I have to tell you, you're going to have to come back to hear about next week. How am I going to get you here if I don't put out these things, you know? Okay, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to have more, more slides of that so you can see, because there are some things that we will be able to see that are close to where they're doing those excavations today, and it's down under the, uh, the city of David. Then, of course, this is a very traditional overhead view of the Temple Mount. And uh, just for your uh, information, that's the Dome of the Rock, which is called the Mosque of Omar, even though it's not a mosque, really. It's, uh, but this, this here, the gray, uh, the gray Dome is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That is a mosque. And that is right up against the southern wall and the southern steps where Jesus walked, and we know that. He walked in this area here. And what we were looking at is right here, that ex excavation. So we are looking at the city of David in this particular area here as being where we're headed as far as our thinking is concerned. So that's, uh, again, giving you an idea and by the way, if you will, look at the shape of this Temple Mount right here. Because as I mentioned last week, uh, and I, I wasn't able to kind of superimpose one picture over the other, but the, the, the same size and dimensions of the Temple Mount, and I'll show you the picture later, is the same size and dimension of the Roman encampment at the base of Masada when the Romans had gone out there to uh, chase and to find and to capture the, uh, the rebels uh, uh, that were being led by Eleazar ben Yair, uh, who ended up being up in Herod's area of Masada and temple and lived up there for a little while until eventually the Romans put a siege upon that place and they got finally up there, but the when, when, the, when the, uh, uh, re, uh, the rebels knew that it was, it was uh, you know, they were going to come in, they, they uh, committed suicide. They had mass suicide, uh, if you know the story of uh, Masada. But uh, it's the encampment at the bottom, and I'll show you a picture of that in, uh, in, a, in just a little bit. What I want to show you next is a uh, bird's eye view on the temple and Fort Antonia, or the fortress that is called Antonia. And uh, this would be the rendering of the, al the, alternate, uh, the alternate site, I should say. The alternate site of the temple and where that would be in relation to the temple mount of today. So I have to do that so I can get it to you. And I should have put on a, another mic so I could do this here. Uh. Anyway, this is the Temple Mount, the very same dimensions. But if you'll notice, all of these buildings or structures, all of that is considered to be the Roman encampment, same dimensions as the encampment, as most Roman encampments are, but particularly the one from uh, Masada. There's some dotted lines. This is where the Dome of the Rock is. And uh, this is the, uh, the area where uh, the, the proposal, or I should say the uh, traditional area of the temple would be right in this area here. But you'll notice this walk, 
uh, it's kind of a, uh, it's really a, like a stairway here, leading down to what is considered a, well, I should be talking to the mic, what is considered uh, the, the temple area below. Now, the reason we said last week was that the Romans, if they were as, as um, uh, militarily minded as they were, and they, and they were, they would want to have their view right down into the Temple Mount area. In other words, not in this little corner like I showed you in the first picture, which was, you know, this, this little structure overlooking, you know, the Temple Mount area where the Jews are, but a place where they could have all of their soldiers. I mean, that's, that's, they weren't scattered throughout the city. They were in one place because they were overseeing the most important place, which was the religious community of the Jews. And they were superstitious too, by the way. The Romans were superstitious about gods. So, you know, they, they wanted to keep a handle on the, on, on, the, on the Jewish people because if they happened to have a bigger god than theirs, you know, they would, they would have to really face a big problem, right? So that's why they were a little bit paranoid about that. And, and with that in mind, you would think that this would be more of an of a, of a appropriate setup. So... Um, This is where the Western Wall is, where the, uh, the Jews go daily to pray. And so that, that just gives you a little bit of an idea. Now, this next slide is the Roman encampment. And there was the best, really the best um, angle that I could get, that I could find. I was looking for a better angle, but this is it here. A larger one. This is a smaller uh, base encampment for those that were going to begin the siege up the mountain to Masada, up the mountain to Masada. So this is it. So you can't really tell from that particular angle, but if you look at it directly overhead, it is exactly the same uh, shape as the Temple Mount. And by the way, it's the exact same size, between 35 and 36 acres. Okay. And then uh, this is what I did last summer, and so I'm showing you all my slides. No, I'm just kidding, because I couldn't take this one. This is an overhead view of uh, the Temple Mount and what is called the City of David before uh, 1948, or, or I should say after 1948, around the time of uh, the beginning of the uh, state of Israel. And you'll, you'll notice something, and there's a, there's a verse of scripture we're going to get to here in just a moment. But I want you to notice that, that outlined yellow part, and then right next to it, this uh, looks like uh, levels of, of fields, and it looks like levels of plowed fields. Uh, would you all agree by, by looking at it? Uh, there's nothing on it. There's nobody living on it. it you, you remember the previous picture. There were a lot of houses already kind of built. But this is how it was before that took place. The red circle, if you see it down here, is, the, is somewhat of the proposed site of, of, the, uh, of where they believe the temple would have been. And, uh, but here's, here's the here's the scripture that I want to uh, refer you to. Uh, and again, I'm leaving it just up for a, a second because I, I want you to notice, let me, let, let me just read the scripture too. It's Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Micah chapter 3, verse 12. And this is, a, this is a judgment against God's people. I mean, it's God's judgment for their sins, their disobedience, uh, their rebelliousness. And it says, therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed, notice, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And that is, when uh, literally, the, the, the high places was the barest places. It was bare. 
And that was the point of that statement, that they would be plowed as a field. Now, let me give you that scripture there, Micah 3, verse 12. So the one thing of great significance now, after seeing the photo here that I just showed you and reading the text of Micah 3, is the fact that the Temple Mount itself, and, and you have to understand this, the Temple Mount itself has never been a plowed field. The Temple Mount itself has never been a plowed field. In fact, if we were just to, you know, when we go into the uh, Temple, uh, uh, Temple Mount tunnels in Israel, we always get this presentation where they use these, it's like being in school because they got these big wooden things that they put out there, you know, with a mountain when, when before even, uh, you know, after the creation, you, you see Mount Moriah there and it's just like a mountain of rock, right? So, I mean, nobody's going to plow on rock. Nobody's going to farm on rock. And then comes, you know, the Jebusites and they start building up against, uh, you know, that one hill on the south going up toward Mount Moriah. And, uh, and then they'll put another block on there to show you, uh, you know, the, the, the city of, of Jerusalem as it's being built up by David and then Solomon. And then they have a block to show you the, the temple on this temple mount. But it begins, it's just a rock. And, and so the point here is that the Temple Mount itself has never been a plowed field or even like a plowed field. Simply because walls, and here, here's the thing, walls have been around and surrounded the Temple Mount for thousands of years. It has never been a plowed field. That particular area of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, or at least right above the mount has never been plowed. It's never been a plowed field. There's always been something there. But it says Zion in the text, if you'll notice, for your sake, therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field. So Zion, and remember you go back to your links, Zion is the city of David, the city of David is in Zion. It's a plowed field. And then we see the, the picture, and there it is. I don't know if we can go back. There it is. A plowed field. The hill that is called Mount Zion. All right. So if we consider our text in 2 Chronicles now, what we read earlier in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 concerning the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. It helps us then to realize a real place and location. Now, we're going, to go, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but last week I ended our study with the passage from Psalm 48, and we're going to begin in verse 9. Notice what it says. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. Take note of that, that you can tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God uh, forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. So it is quite possible that, uh, and I probably read all of the verses and I didn't show you the verses. So there we go. I do remember, I got to show you the verses. According to thy name, O God, that's verse 10. Uh, and then verse 11, notice, let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around about her, tell the towers thereof. And then verse 13, which is what I want you to see. Mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. Take very close attention to the things that you see about the temple and about the wall and about the watchtowers, everything. 
and tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. So as I said, it's quite possible that verse 13 is describing our generation and the time in which we are now living to give witness of the Lord's accurate, reliable, and trustworthy, and inerrant word, no matter how deeply entrenched maybe traditions have become and are in the minds and hearts of some men and some people. Going all the way back to the fourth century, for example, with no, with no archaeological evidence or basis or even critical examination, certain writings of that time, the fourth century, proclaimed Zion to be located in the upper area of the city of Jerusalem. The upper area of the city of Jerusalem, which means not in the city of David, but up into and beyond what we know as the Temple Mount. That would be the upper city. But with the efforts of uh, British archaeologist W.F. Birch, and over a period of 13 years, this was in the 19th century, the real Zion, and consequently the city of David, were rediscovered at the lower edge of the southeast ridge in the city of David, right where the city of Zion has always been called to be and classified to be, south of the Temple Mount, not in and above. So when we compare these two texts, the text, well, let me, let me show you one quick picture before we get to the text. But here on this particular slide, it's again looking at the south side of, of the, uh, the Temple Mount. Here's the, uh, the wall, of course. Here's the southern step area. You can't see it because of this wall here. All right? And uh, I'll talk a little louder. Notice this is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is the Temple Mount over here. Uh, this says the, the J-U-N-G gate, or Yung gate, but it's actually the Dung gate. <laughs> they just kind of misspelled. Maybe they didn't want to spell Dung, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, here's Al-Aqsa. Here's the Temple Mount up here. Here's the city of David right here. And a couple of other places here, Kidron, Kidron Valley. And that's Mount, the Mount of Olives on this, on this whole side here. So here's the city of David. And that's Zion, because the scripture says, in Zion, the city of David. So now, with that in mind, consider these two verses. Now, this was last week we gave you these two verses. And then, of course, today as well, in just a moment. Nevertheless, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, when David and, and the Israelites came up into the city of David, this is what it says. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same is the city of David. So how clear is that? Here they take Zion, which is the city of David. So there, there's no disputing this particular statement. This is a very important link. That it says he took the stronghold of Zion, which had been the Jebusite city, but now it is the city of David. And then what we read earlier in verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father. Well, where was that? Well, there in Zion, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So obviously, south of the temple uh, mount area that we've been looking at. So it became, or I should say it becomes clear, that David bought that threshing floor. When you put all of these scriptures together, it becomes clear that David bought that threshing floor as the place to build a future temple. Add to this the connection with Micah's prophecy that's given in Micah chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Now it says, now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. 
but they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. And notice this, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. And that's language that deals with threshing floors. And then if you look at verse 13, it says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces my people, or many people, I'm sorry. And I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. So those references are, are, are very significant. That it talks about gathering sheaves as, at the, as what they do at a threshing floor. And then, of course, it says arise and thresh. So these, these are just, again, little links and connectors to the understanding of the fact that Zion is, in fact, where there were threshing floors. We knew that because of Arnua, which is Ornan. Uh, some translations say Arnua. But, you know, that he had this, and David sought to buy it for that very purpose. And it's confirmed by what we read in Second Chronicles 3. The very place where David bought the threshing floor is where Solomon builds the temple. The very place. And another important consideration before we, we move on, and I was hoping to get to the excavations today, but uh, the ones that are taking place today and assessing the more traditional views to contrast these, we'll get to that. As I said, we're going to get to it next week. But it, uh, the, the thing to consider today is that the location of the temple also required fresh running water. It required fresh running water. It is well known that there are a number of large cisterns in and around the old city of Jerusalem, especially near the Temple Mount area. In fact, when we go down into the Temple Mount tunnels, we see a, a, a number of uh, cisterns where water is collected. And even to this day, there's water being collected there. It's mostly rainwater. And so uh, that's certainly water that was for the Temple Mount area because there was no running water in the Temple Mount area to speak of. But the problem with this water is that it would not have been the fit water for priesthood purification purposes. Fresh water was vital for the priesthood. It was vital for what they did. It was vital for their purification of themselves. It was vital for the, for the, uh, the sacrifices that they did, for the people, the mikvahs themselves, which, which was, of course, the, the ceremonial uh, cleansing pools. Uh, in fact, you know, if you go, if you go out to, the, uh, uh, to Qumran, where, where the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, were found, uh, there are a number of mikvahs there that this group, uh, the Essenes, that some people believe John the Baptist was a part of. But, you know, they, they have these, and, and, and for them, they, they needed running water for all of these cisterns. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, mikvahs. The mikvahs were the ceremonial baths. Uh, they had cisterns for other reasons, but the water for the mikvahs were different, was, was supposed to be different. So, uh, it would have been nearly impossible, if you think about it, to carry water from hundreds of yards away. Now, there were uh, these kind of like aqueducts that were supposed to take the water up into the Temple Mount area, and that was done during some of the king's uh, time. But uh, still, nonetheless, when, when everything would, was, was beginning, it was impossible, or nearly impossible to carry water from hundreds of yards away, not, not just a few feet away, but hundreds of yards away, and a vast amount would have been needed. I mean, when you talk about the sacrifices and the blood and the cleansing and all of that, a lot of water was needed. But there, there's an interesting account recorded by uh, the historian uh, Eusebius, and we, uh, we quoted him last week, but 
He wrote the words of, a, of, of an Egyptian visitor to Jer uh, Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, whose name was Aristeus, who in describing the waters of the Gihon Springs, or the Gihon Spring, I should say, he said this, and this is the word, these are the words of Aristeus as recorded by Eusebius. He said, there is an inexhaustible reservoir of water as would be expected from an abundant spring gushing up naturally from within the temple. From within the temple. Interesting, isn't it? There was no running water on the Temple Mount, but there was running water coming out of the temple from this particular account. 400 years after Aristeus, the Roman historian Tacitus stated that the temple had, and I quote, a natural spring of water that welled from its interior. So there are two references of people that saw water coming out from the temple. Or what would have been the temple, of course, later on. Uh, and, and Tacitus would have, would have been able to have seen the temple at that time. But most importantly, there's a reference that's given in Scripture. In the book of uh, Joel, chapter 3, verses, verse 18, and it's just one verse, but it says this, And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Water shall come forth of the house of the Lord. Literally coming forth out of the house of the Lord. So that is scriptural, that's what's called scriptural consistency. If there was water coming out of the temple already, then it would, then it would be fair to say that uh, there was a source of water where they needed the source of water for the temple and for the temple uh, uh, sacrifices and, 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 and everything else. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't water on the Temple Mount that was brought there, as we said, in some manner, but I want to show you a, a slide here of David's Jerusalem. And uh, notice, I want you to notice where the Gihon Springs, or the Gihon Spring, I keep wanting to call it Springs, but the Gihon Spring, if you look, this one's a little dark up here, so probably the sides are a little better. But here's a Gihon Spring right here, going into the city, or out of the city, I should say. Uh, but if you'll notice at the very top, see the very top here? Well, that's just above that. Just above that is where the Temple Mount is supposed to be. Notice the distance, you know, for the water. So they, they, had to, they had to really do a lot if they were going to get water up to the Temple Mount to have sufficient water for sacrifices. So it's just something to think about. I, you know, this, this particular slide here is just, again, giving you an indication of where the Gihon Spring, uh, be, uh, spring begins uh, you'll notice that it, it goes through uh, into Hezekiah's tunnel, which is part of the city of David. It's part of the tour that you take when you go through there. Uh, you'll notice that it goes and winds in and around until it gets down to the Pool of Siloam. But there's no, uh, it, it's not even close to the Temple Mount area. That's way above, outside of the slide picture. And then when we look at this last slide, and this is our last slide for today, uh, you, can, you can't read the words there. I, can't, I know where they are. They're, that's the Temple Mount area right up here. Here's the city of David. Here's Gihon. And here's its exit. And here's Shiloah, Siloam. The exit out of the city 
And of course, there's the tunnel area here, but it comes out here at Shiloh. But look at this, and look where the Temple Mount is. So water had to come from a different source. And there, there are those who would, would say it came from a, from a different kind of a, a spring into the Temple Mount. So yeah, that's, that's good to know. Because, you know, for this, for this long, we've had the, you know, uh, the traditional teaching that the temple itself has to be on the Temple Mount area. Has to be. Well, we know that there's a big problem, as we said earlier. The problem is the, uh, the, the Dome of the Rock and the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Temple Mount today is controlled not by Israel, but by the Arab Waqf, W-A-Q-F, -W the Waqf. It's, it's a council uh, that oversees this particular area. They do not let the Jewish people go up to worship up there. They cannot have uh, uh, any kind of services of any sort. They can go up there in groups, in small groups, they cannot pray there. Christians at times are allowed to go up there. Christians cannot pray on the Temple Mount area. So it, it's very heavily controlled by the Arabs. What I want to do now is, is give you at least one perspective to consider uh, with a more traditional view. And, and this is the view of uh, at least the perspective of Thomas Ice, who is uh, one of the directors of the uh, uh, pre-trib uh, uh, research center in, uh, I think it's in Dallas. He's a good guy, I've heard him speak and uh, uh, really well uh, versed in, in the scriptures concerning prophecy and all. Uh, let, me, let me begin with this particular uh, statement that he's making. Stories could be multiplied of an increasing desire on the part of Israeli Jews to see their temple rebuilt. In light of an increasing interest and thrust by Israeli Jews to rebuild the temple, there does not appear to be a legitimate scenario within today's political climate that might lead to the actual rebuilding of the Jewish temple, which would be located where the current Islamic Dome of the Rock now stands. So he offers this suggested scenario. The Bible indicates that there will be a temple located in Jerusalem during a future tribulation period of seven years. We talked about that last week, and I think I gave you most of these scriptures. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, if you want to write them down if you didn't last week. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And then, of course, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2 and chapter 13, verse 15. Now these all are indications of a temple during the time of the Antichrist, during the seven-year tribulation period. He goes on to say, presumably that temple would be rebuilt on the Temple Mount where Israel's two previous temples once stood. Again, that's the traditional view. And so therefore he holds to the traditional view. Uh, the next temple could be built at any time between now and the middle of the seven-year tribulation. That's also true. It doesn't have to stand for seven years. But it does have to be there ready at the middle of the seven-year period. So that's a, that's a good statement. The next temple could be built at any time between now and the middle of the seven-year tribulation. Since the references cited above refer to an event called the abomination of desolation. We know that to be when Antichrist enters into the, into the temple, into the holy place, and declares himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. And that'll occur in the middle of the tribulation. We'll come back to that, and I'll show that to you in, in just a moment. But thus, he says, it is reasonably concluded that this rebuilt temple will have to be there sometime before the middle of the tribulation in order for it to function for an undetermined period of time before the beast or antichrist desolates it at the midpoint. So that's also true. Doesn't have to be there in the first day of the seven year tribulation, but it's got to be somewhere between there and the tribulation, or the middle of the tribulation period. And thus, uh, let's see, 
It is concluded that this rebuilt temple will have to be there sometime before the middle of the tribulation in order for it to function for an undetermined period of time before the beast or antichrist desolates it at the midpoint. In the Revelation 11 passage, in which John is told to measure the temple in his vision of the future, the two witnesses, after the fact that the temple is mentioned, so notice how, notice this, these assumptions that are going to be made. Notice carefully. He says, in his vision of the future, the two witnesses, after the fact that the temple is mentioned, are the major focus of the rest of the chapter. Okay, I can understand that because they are. From verse 3 on, they're mentioned there. In light of Revelation 11, now Thomas Ice uh, is going to quote from Dr. John Whitcomb. He says, Dr. John Whitcomb has suggested, has suggested, as far as I am concerned, a likely scenario for the rebuilding of Israel's next temple. So I got really interested in that because I said, wow, this is, you know, uh, uh, it's, it, he's already mentioned it's got to be on the Temple Mount. So I said, okay, let's read it. The significance, and here's Dr. John Whitcomb's uh, uh, statement. The significance of these words must not be minimized. First, for the Antichrist to cause the Jewish sacrifices to cease, because remember in the, in the, uh, in the text in 2 Thessalonians, it says the sacrifices and oblations will cease. Well, actually, I'm sorry, in Daniel chapter 9, the uh, sacrifice and oblations will cease. So he says for that to happen, for the Antichrist to cause the Jewish sacrifices to cease, the sacrificial system must have been previously instituted. Okay? I, 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 I'm up with that. And thus, part of the strong covenant with the, and he quotes, the many in Israel, must be permission to offer sacrifices again in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. In light of the current situation in Jerusalem, it would take a very powerful person. Now listen carefully to what he says. It would take a very powerful person to obtain and guarantee such access by Israel to the temple area. It seems possible. Now notice it seems possible that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 verses 3 through 6 who have irresistible authority in Jerusalem during the first three and a half years will also be instrumental in arranging the terms of this covenant with the little horn, that being the Antichrist, for not until they are killed by him after he comes up out of the abyss is he able to break the covenant and terminate the sacrificial system. Now, I read that and I thought, oh my goodness, that's a lot of assumption. I mean, that's, that's a lot of uh, speculation to, to, to say, well, you, you know, because the two witnesses are there, it seems that they could have the power then to have them come in and, and actually have the authority to be on the Temple Mount. Let me, let me go on and read what Thomas Ice goes on to say here. He says, if we grant the viability of Dr. Whitcomb's scenario, it means, and listen to this, now this is coming from Dr. Ice, it means that the Antichrist could grant permission to the Jews to rebuild their temple as part of the strong covenant uh, mentioned in Daniel 9.27. This would mean, now listen, this would mean that the Jews would be free to remove the Dome of the Rock and construct their third temple on that site. And I thought, they would be given the right to remove the Dome of the Rock? The way I understand it, and I think most people do today, is that if Israel somehow goes onto the Temple Mount and puts one nail into anything to begin construction of a temple, you're going to start World War III. So I'm thinking this is a tremendous assumption to think that it's because of the two witnesses who have a totally different calling as far as I can see in the scripture to what they're doing there before the temple. In fact, witnessing, by the way, the Messiah Jesus, the reason for their being assassinated as they will be. Of course, three and a half days in the street, then they're going to rise again from the dead and then ascend 
ascending to heaven. But here's the thing. That, that to me seems like a lot of assumption. I wish I could say that that is scriptural. I, I'd like to say it, but I, I'm, I'm struggling with the assumption there. It doesn't mean it takes away my thinking that they still believe that the Temple Mount is the place for the temple. It's just how do we get there? You see, do you see the dilemma now? How we're trying to come up with ways to get Israel on the Temple Mount? Well, let's, let's have this strong covenant between the two witnesses and the Antichrist. I mean, <laughs> ah, I'm really struggling with that because, again, think about the, the implications here. Oh, yeah, then they'll be able to remove the Dome of the Rock mob. Wow. And, and, the, and the Arabs will be fine with that? And, and no, no jihad? I mean, the jihad, oh, we'll put, we put our jihad away. I, 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 I struggle with that. If you can explain it for me better, maybe I'll, I'll listen. I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like to understand that a little better. It's just a little bit too much of, 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 a, of an assumption that, that, you know, requires, by the way, it requires a little bit more scriptural detail. I'm hoping that uh, I've provided a little bit of scriptural detail to what may be, you know, this alter alternative uh, location, even though I, I want the temple to be wherever God wants it to be. You all understand that? I mean, if it is the Temple Mount, praise God. Every time I go to the, uh, the Mount of Olives and I look across at the Golden Gate, at the Eastern Gate, I say, well, you know, uh, and I've taught it many times there. You know, this, this, would be, this could be the place where Jesus is going to just move this whole valley out of the way. And he's going to go right through there, man. There's not going to be anything that's going to hold him back from going into his city. But what we have to also consider is there's nothing that's going to hold him back from changing the whole topography of the area so that the temple will all of a sudden be up there and not across in the old Temple Mount area. And wherever the temple, true Temple Mount is going to be, that is where Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. That we can be certain. That we can be thankful for. But if God is true to his word, it will be in Zion, the city of David. So if it is the Temple Mount, praise the Lord. God will, God will work it out. I don't know that he'll work it out with the two witnesses because that was a tremendous assumption and speculation as far as I'm concerned. And that, you know, we sometimes have to do that with prophecy, right? We sometimes have to look at the prophecy, well, it could be this or it could be that. But I tell you what, if there's something that's clear, then let's stand on what's clear. Let's stand on what's clear. Turn to the Second Thessalonians. It's not going to be up on, on the text, but I don't, have, I don't have it here. But let's just go ahead and end with some stuff in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Because, because I want this to be clear to you. that what Paul is talking about here is in fact, how are we doing? Oh, good. Is in fact his coming for his saints. But then notice what immediately follows. So now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not so soon shaken in mind or be troubled, uh, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now, that is the word apostasia, apostasy, the apostasy has to come first. Now, we could spend an hour talking about that word apostasy. There are some people who actually believe that it's, it's actually a, a taking out, uh, almost as if using the word apostasia as a, uh, uh, the sense of, um, uh, of, of the rapture being at that point. It's possible, but I, I'm not big on that, that 
particular use because what we're seeing today is an apostasy in the church. We're seeing an apostasy of people getting away from the truth of the scriptures, getting away from the study of the scriptures, getting away into the new age uh, mentality and the, and the emerging church and, 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 and doing all kinds of other things and, and really just misrepresenting God in thousands of ways. So it says, for the day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. The son of perdition. Now, this is not an assumption. This is, this is, say, this is stating that when we look at the whole thing about, of a falling away first and a man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition, we know that to be the Antichrist. Let me say that the falling away is also the falling away from the truth by many who consider themselves still to be Christian, by those who consider themselves to be uh, uh, ecumenical and, uh, and a part of a one world religion type of a thing where, okay, now we're bringing together. And, um, and by the way, the Pope uh, did this, I think it was the beginning of last year or the year before, but, but he did a video where he's, he, he had a, uh, somebody representing the uh, uh, Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, the uh, Hindu, the Buddhist, and then of course a Catholic priest, and to say, here we are, we all believe the same God. We, you know, we're, we're all brothers, you know, together. And, and so th if that doesn't say, hey, one world religion, I don't know what, it is, what does say it. You know, that pretty much said it. Well, that's, that's where the scriptures say is heading, you know, where we're heading, but it has to come through an apostasy, through a falling away of the truth, from the truth. So to see that, is, I'm not saying this is an assumption, I'm just saying this is, this is a link to the fact that people are going to be blinded to this Messiah because he is going to declare himself to be God. Look at the next verse. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God, sitting in the very place where God would have been worshiped. Instead, he wants to worship. And he says, remember, Paul goes on to say, remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. The Holy Spirit is what's holding things back. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let. In other words, he who restrains will restrain. He who's holding back will let go until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way in this particular sense. The Holy Spirit can't disappear because he's omnipresent. But the extent of the power of the Holy Spirit is taken away because the church is taken out. The church that is contained in, that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, you know, the restraint, the restraint is also the church today. We're a tremendous restraint to the immorality of the world, even though it's going crazy. And the world's, you know, just losing it. But, you know, we're still here. And that's why we are hated for loving Jesus. Because we love the cross. And we love what Jesus did. So he says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness uh, of unrighteousness in them that, per that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let me close with this. But we, we believers, not they, but we believers, are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle, that is, the word of God or the letter of God, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, with wit, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts 
and establish you in every good word and work. So we have nothing to fear, folks, in these last days. Nothing to fear whatsoever, because if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have our comfort in him. We have our establishment in him. We're established, we're faithful, we're, 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 we're what we are because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So let's keep living for Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. Okay, so next week we'll, we'll try to close uh, on part three because there are some things that I, there, there's some things I still want to show you. And there are some good, uh, uh, strong uh, arguments for the Temple Mount that I also want to bring to you because I said last week, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm, I just want the Word of God to speak for itself and to tell us and to show us these things. So we're going to see how everything kind of lines up. And then again, we have to trust what God is going to do. And, but one thing is for sure, there is a place where God's going to come back. There is a place where Jesus is going to come back. And some of us that have been there, man, we're rejoicing because we've been there. We said, we want to be there when he comes back. That would be a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Amen. Let the church say. Amen. All right.